Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. God is doing something so unique in the earth right now. He's doing something so special and unique, and he's raising up specific houses where their first priority is built not to attract people, but to attract him. And we realize that when we get him, we don't really need to showcase anything else to get people in a room. People just come. People come. They want pure water. They want, they want purity. And so um, God's doing something special in America and the earth right now. The God who is omnipresent is desiring to manifest himself somewhere. The God who is everywhere is desiring to dwell somewhere desiring to dwell somewhere. And there's a difference between the omnipresence of God and the manifest presence of God. It's like, you know, there's different degrees and levels of his presence. It's like the omnipresence, God is everywhere, but very few people, very few churches commit themselves to do the things that say, I want the manifest presence. I want to host him. I want to host him. And Jesus is readily available to everyone, but he's not cheap. He's not cheap. He's not cheap. He requires everything. He requires everything. I just want to start this morning by praying. Can we do that? Can we just lift our hands and lift our voices all over the room? Can we just begin pouring our love, our affection on him? Oh, wonderful Jesus. Oh, wonderful Jesus. Lord, we're a lovesick bride this morning. We're lovesick for you. We want to know you. Lord, we refuse to just make this another Sunday, God. We refuse to live off of last week's encounter. Lord, we need to know the person of Jesus. We don't just want to know his hand. We want to know his, his personality. We want to know his thoughts. We want to know his feelings, God. We pray that you would find a people today where we lose our appetite for anything that is not your presence, Lord. May we lose our taste for anything outside of the presence of our Lord. God, we pray that you would make us an oily bride this morning. May we be filled with the oil of your presence, God. God, we thank you for your presence this morning. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Jesus' name. You know, sometimes we need to slow down to the speed of his presence, and we go faster than we ever dreamed of going. Stephanie Gretzinger was at this conference that we went to and she said, I feel like the Lord wants to do business with our busyness. <laughs> it's like here in um, Dallas Metroplex, it's like we are so good at, at being busy. We're so good at being professional. And I feel like the Lord is delivering the church from being professional Christians. There's a deliverance from, he, he, he's raising up leaders who are first lovers. <laughs> Leaders who are first lovers. He's, he's really purging the church of professional Christianity, of marginal Christianity. And he's looking for people who are first lovesick, who are not convinced in their own bios, who are not convinced by their own resumes, but who are convinced where they get their, their conviction from the prayer room. 
more than their degrees, more than any of all that stuff. It's like we, we, we're being purged from professional Christianity in this hour. And I just want to say you can have as much of Jesus as you want to today. You can have as much as, of him as you, as, as you want to. And, you know, this, this, this church, churches, we, we come and we invite Jesus and he's our guest of honor, right? But the moment that Jesus comes in the room, he goes from being the guest of honor and to the host. <laughs> and that's when we hold to our plans, hold to our set list ever so loosely and say, oh, it's your house. It's your church. It's not my church. Jesus said he would build his church. That means it's not Pastor David's church. It's not Tanner's church. It's not, it's not a denomination. It's Jesus's church. That means he gets to tell us what to do. He gets to tell us how to run our services. He gets to tell us we are children of the wind here. Do you understand? We're children of the wind. We go where the wind blows, where the wind of the spirit blows. That's what we yield to. We yield to him. And he's looking for more and more people, individuals who say, I want to be a child of the wind. Not just in in a church setting, but in business settings and family settings. He's looking for children of the wind. He's looking for friends. So uh, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles this morning to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. John chapters 14, 15, and 16 are some of the richest chapters in the entire Bible. If you were stranded on an island and all you had was John chapters 14, 15, and 16, you would be set for the rest of your life. It is so rich. And then uh, Mike Bickle at International House of Prayer, they're actually doing an entire two years on just meticulously going verse by verse on these chapters because these are Jesus's last words before he goes to the cross. And many people call these chapters the greatest teaching done by the greatest teacher. The greatest teaching done by the greatest teacher. And so today I want to really hone in. I'm not going to, it's not going to be a very general message. It's going to be really specific today. I really want to hone in on a small jewel of an invitation that Jesus gives us here. That it is so tiny. It is so small. It's like a sliver. And we all have read it before what I'm about to read. And it's, it's easily missed. It's things that are so simple can be easily missed in our Christian life. You know, it's like prayer. Prayer is so simple that it's easily missed. (laughs) Reading our word is so simple that it is easily and frequently missed. So I want us to go to these things in our faith that many miss because it's like, oh, I I, I know that. I know the cross. I've done the cross before. It's like, no, no, no. The cross is not just a front door to fulfilling our hopes and dreams. The cross speaks of laying down your life. The cross is the centrality of everything we do in our lives. And so I want to, to really focus on this little sliver of an invitation here. John chapter 15, verse 9. I've spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for you. His friends, underline that word friends or market. You are my friends. If you do what I command. I do not call you slaves anymore because a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you. Notice friendship 
is, is quantified by knowing the Lord. I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you that you should go out and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask in my name, he will give you. So this morning, uh, we're, we're in this topic of, of his presence, people of his presence. I want to talk about friendship with his presence this morning. And I spoke about a month ago at our dwell outpour on this topic of friendship. And I, I, I just kind of ran out of time. I felt like there was just so much more bottled up that the Lord wanted to release through this topic. And so uh, today I'm, I'm gonna say a lot of things that I said last month, but I'm also gonna bring out some new things today that I felt like the Lord wanted to give us on this topic of friendship with his presence, on friendship with Jesus. And throughout scripture, there are really two types of uh, promises that God gives us. Okay, so there, there's inherited promises, which mean I get it by merely being a son and daughter in the kingdom. There's nothing I can do there's to, to, to be saved. There's nothing I can do to, for God to love me more. Those are called inherited promises. And most of Western Christianity just kind of stays right here in this camp, right? Of like, Oh, I'm, sa I'm saved. There's nothing, there's nothing else I can do. It's like, I'm going to just stay here. That is great. But anything beyond salvation does require works. It does require sacrifice. It does require going after the Lord wholeheartedly. It does require a laid down life. And this, this, this language that says, you know, if God wanted to touch me, he knows my address. That language really breeds laziness in the church. <laughs> Like, if God wants to touch me, he knows where I live. He knows my address, you know. You know, this, this, that, that whole mentality, it, that, that breeds sluggishness. It breeds laziness. And Jesus is not coming back for a lazy bride. He's coming back for one who is burning, who, for one who is passionate for the bridegroom. He's coming back for not a lukewarm church, but one filled with fire in her eyes. He's, he's coming for an oily oily bride. And so there's inherited promises that God gives us that emphasize sonship, daughtership. And then the second one is called, um, that, that I like to call is conditional promises, conditional promises. This means that it requires you and I's participation. And why does the Lord do this? It's because he wants to know you. He wants you to know him. He's a relational God. Everything he does is because of relationship in mind, everything. He does with relationship in mind. And for much of my life, I read this passage in John about friends of God. And I'm thinking, oh, that means everybody. That's an inherited promise. But as I read closer this week, I realized this is not an inherited promise. This is a conditional one. That Jesus is not just saying, hey, it's a, it's a, it's a broad gate. Just everybody come here and be my friends. No, no, very few are his friends. Very few choose to pay the price for friendship. He said, if you are my friends, you will do what I command. You will do what I command. I've said this before. The Lord has many singers who sound awesome, but he has few worshipers who know how to break their oil. Give me purity over gifting any day. I love gifting. We need to be gifted in, in our craft, but, but, but gifting cannot bring heaven down. And, and he's looking for, for, 
people, for pastors who are more skilled at moving his heart than they are at moving people. That, that's the age we're coming into. And I just wanna say those, I say this with love, this is not to strike fear, but those who are not in love in this next age will not survive what's coming. I just wanna say that. I just wanna say that. It's not that we'll lose your salvation or anything, but I just feel the turbulence of the coming hour of the last days of what's prophesied. You need to be anchored more in your prayer closet than you are on your television. I mean, I'm saying this to me, like, this, this, is, this is real stuff. This is the reality of the world we're living in. He's looking for people. He, he has many who are influential for him, but he has few who are intimate with him. Wow. Many are influential for the Lord, but few are intimate with the Lord. I was at a pastor's conference in Orlando, Florida at Jesus Image uh, about a month ago. And there was an exposure that I had with a depth of his presence, a depth of friendship with him, a depth of hunger, a depth of love that I didn't even know was available. And how many of you know when you're exposed to places like that, you're ruined forever? <laughs> it's like many of you are here in this room because you got ruined in the best way for, for, for just church as usual, church as usual. He's, he's inviting us to friend, friendship, and those deep places in God will not just fall in our laps. How many of you know that? Deep places, friendship with God does not fall in our laps, but it requires a complete overhaul of our value system, of our priorities. It's like friendship is costly. It's not for the faint of heart. It is costly. It's for those who want it. Why does he make it so costly? Because Jesus, he will not throw his pearls among swine if you're not going to value what he gives you. He won't entrust you with it. He will entrust us with the measure of himself we will jealously guard. That's how much he will trust us with, the measure of his presence that we will jealously guard. And I, I have this, I have this, I want to say, I don't want to say burden, but it's just this, this thing I'm wrestling with. And it's not with anyone here, but it's just in the capital C church, the global church, that there's a language of friendship in the church. There's a language of love in the church, but for ma the majority of it, the behavior, the air in the room is not matching the language that is coming out of our mouths. It's a problem when we have the right language to say we're revival people, to say we're present, to, to say all these things, but yet underneath it, the culture of our hearts is saying opposite. Wow. How many of you know whenever you, you see somebody in the grocery store at church, what do you say? You say, hello, how are you doing? And the person says, good, how are you doing? And then you move on, right? <laughs> so the language is saying, I want to know you, but the behavior says something else. And we do it to the Lord all the time. The language says, I want to know you, but the behavior says something otherwise. Um, how many of you get really thirsty before bed? Like you just chug water and then you wake up in the middle of the night because you have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> when Emily and I first got married, we would be laying in our cozy beds, just all comfortable and cozy. And then we would both get hit with those pre-nighttime, you know, I'm thirsty right now, right? And like one night I would look at Emily, Emily, I don't want to get out of bed. I'm too comfortable. Can you get up, go to the fridge and get me a glass of water? Okay, I'll do it. She brings it to me. The next night, 
she looks at me. It's it's your turn. I'm thirsty now. <laughs> we can just share the glass. Can I? Can you can you get me some water? I guess so. I get up get the water. <laughs> and this was a season in my life where I was really, I had the right language of, I want God, I want God, I want God. But my prayer life was not matching that intensity. I had a greater intensity of my language of the Lord, but my behavior was not as intense. I wasn't actually doing the things to get what I wanted. And I felt like the Lord was saying in that season, you are thirsty enough to ask for water, but you are not thirsty enough to get out of your comfort zone and get it yourself. Many are thirsty, are hungry enough to sing the right songs, to pray the right prayers, to say the right things, but you go home and your behavior is saying otherwise. Your behavior is saying, you're, you're saying, I want to know you, I want to know you, but your behavior is saying otherwise. And, and, and I'm not like bringing a sword today. That's not my heart, but my heart is to remove every obstruction between Jesus and his bride. That's, that's what I want. That's what I want this morning. Many of us can have the language, but very few will do the things to actually get what we're praying for, to get the measure of God that we're longing for. And that's only found in friendship. Like how many of you have heard just the religious thing of uh, praise the Lord, brother. How are you doing? Oh, praise the Lord. I'm blessed and highly favored. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's like, that's language. But like this morning when Victoria started going into praise the Lord, oh my soul, praise the Lord, there was a moment where it's like the, the culture of our hearts in the room matched the language we were saying and it just, just ascended to another place. You ever feel that in the room during worship when you're just singing, holy, holy, holy. And it's not just like a word. It's like, oh, you are holy. You are holy. You are holy. You catch the revelation of his holiness in your behavior begins matching and aligning with the words you're saying, and that, that right there is, is precious. It's, it's rare air right there. It is rare air. It is a slow drip, but it is, it is, is worth it. It is worth it. And how many of you know the longer, <laughs> the longer we profess to be Christians is not an indication of how well we know God. <laughs> the longer we profess to be a Christian is not an indication of how close we are as friends with his presence. Some of the meanest people I've met are some of the like, been in church the longest. It's like, wow, you're really mean right now. Like, how, how can you go be with the Lord and come out like that? You know, it's like, I don't know who you were talking to, but when I come out, I, I, I come out with tears repenting to, you know, he, he confronts me on stuff I don't want to be confronted to, but that's called lordship. Jesus is, he is our savior, but more than that, he's Lord. That means he gets to tell me what to do. He gets to tell me to do things I don't want to do. I don't feel like doing. That's called lordship. Jesus is Lord. He's not homeboy. He's Lord. That, that's, he's Lord. He's Lord. So this morning I say all that. I really want to provoke us to re-ante our hearts and double down on things we may already know. Um, I may not say anything new today, but I want, I want us to double down and re-ante the core convictions of our faith this morning, the core convictions that get us to that place of deep, deep fellowship, deep, deep friendship with his presence, because it's one thing to get Jesus for a moment, but it's an entirely different level to get him for a lifetime. But it's possible. It's possible. So this morning, I, I want to give us four core commitments that friends of Jesus have. 
four core commitments that laid down lovers have. And there's more than this. It's not just confined to four. Obviously, I could write a list of, of several, um, but these are just four that I felt like the Lord was really highlighting for us as a house, for us as individuals. And so this morning, I really want to position us as a house to position ourselves to encounter the presence of God on our own, okay? Um, we could gather on Sundays and it's all great, but I want to give you just practical stuff of like positioning you to after this, after we leave, you go home and you can't wait to go in your prayer closet and meet with the Lord and develop this deep, deep place of friendship with him. All right. So number one, friends of Jesus have a pursuit of purity. Friends of Jesus have a pursuit of purity. And I, I personally, I have such a deep, deep conviction for purity right now. There, there is some of the loudest voices, not only in culture, but in the popular church world are, are screaming at our teenagers, are screaming at our kids saying that, that success is driven by metrics, by influence, by popularity, that this is success. And it's like you compare your own life to that. And it's like, I'm not successful. And then that's why depression rates are so high. That's why anxiety rates are so high because it's like, I'm not that. I'm not, I don't have all these followers. I don't have all these things. And, you know, if you look at two, two stories in the Bible, I want to show you two stories. Two, I'm going to compare these stories. One of them is Jesus feeding the 5,000. So numerically, by metrics, by the earth's success, they would call that, yes, that was successful. Even heaven calls that successful. We're feeding, Jesus fed 5,000 people. What a miracle. 5,000 were there. Another place in scripture I'm sure we've all heard is Jesus dying on the cross. How many were there? Scripture really says there was about two or three of his friends there. So the world would look at this and call the multiplying of the fish more successful because they judge it by metrics. However, <laughs> the kingdom does not judge success by metrics. It judges success by depths and realms of his presence. So I'm thankful for the feeding of the 5,000. Thankful for that. But between these two events, which one is, is more cataclysmic, is more paramount, is more defining for our faith? I would suggest it's the cross. That's why we can never judge success or anointing by grandness, by size, by following, by numbers. That is, that is an idol in much of the world. It's, it's a, and if we're not careful... Much of our generation will trade purity for popularity. And, and we've seen this tragically recently in the church world. We've seen great leaders fall. We've seen great leaders fall because they, I don't know the story, but this is just my interpretation. The popularity, the influence of their lives was greater than the foundation of purity and it crushed them. And if we teach a generation to emphasize popularity more than purity, then they will end up receiving crowns that will crush them in the end. I do not want to give a generation crowns that will crush them. Purity. Pastor Bill Johnson, he's, he was always so meticulous about who he allowed on the platform, about who he allowed to lead worship. And he would always say this. He would always say, I don't want anyone leading me in worship who doesn't worship when they're not leading worship. <laughs> it's like, yeah, why didn't I think of that? That's so, like, that, that, is the, that is how important purity is. 
That's how important purity is. I don't want anybody leading me in worship who does not worship when they're not leading worship. When they're not leading worship. All right. I want to read Judges chapter 16. Pastor David and I have just been having this, this dialogue with each other about the life of Samson. And, and th- this is a very important uh, story, I feel like, for the body of Christ right now. It's important because it is sobering. It's really sobering and it strikes the fear of God in me in, in the best way. So I want to read in Judges 16, chapter 18. It says, when Delilah realized that he had told her the whole truth, about his hair. She sent this message to the Philistine leaders, come one more time, for he has told me the whole truth. The Philistine leaders came to her and brought her the money with them. She let Samson fall asleep on her lap and called a man to shave off the seven braids on his head. In this way, she rendered him helpless and his strength left him. Then she cried, Samson, The Philistines are here. When he awoke from his sleep, he said, I will escape as I did before and shake them free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. It's one of the most heartbreaking uh, verses in all of scripture. I've discovered that God is very loud when he shows up in a place. He makes a big scene when he shows up with revival or when he decides to rest on a person's life. He's very loud when he comes, but he is very quiet when he lifts. It's very subtle. It's very subtle. I will shake myself free, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. I remember when we first started Dwell Youth, we first became youth pastors and um, we had a lot of well-meaning voices coming to us that have, had done this way longer than we've even been alive. <laughs> uh, before all that, I had a strong conviction from the Lord to build this thing only on the presence of God. <laughs> like no gimmicks, n- nothing. I just had this between me and the Lord. It, I'm not saying every youth ministry has to do that, but between me and the Lord, it was, I want you to build this without any flash, without any hype. I want this to be only built on my presence, on miracles, signs, and wonders. And we had a lot lot of well-meaning voices coming to us saying, if you want that room packed out, you got to do gift cards. You got to give away tennis shoes and televisions and, and, and all this stuff. And in my heart, I was just I was really grieved. <laughs> I was really grieved because between me and the Lord, you know, I'm living for one moment. I'm, I'm living for one moment my entire life. It's the moment I stand before the throne and my life is audited by holy fire. <laughs> and there will be two categories that my life's work, my ministry, whatever, will be, will be placed into when that holy fire comes. And this will not determine our salvation or anything. That's, that's set in stone. Salvation is set, but this will determine my place in eternity. It will determine my rewards. It will determine all that in, in eternity. So two different categories. One will be wood, hay, and stubble, which I don't know if you know anything about wood, hay, and stubble, but they burn pretty easily. (laughs) They're a lot cheaper to get. They're easier. But the other category is called gold, silver, and precious stone, which is rare, which is not burn up, which is costly to get. 
And that fire will determine which one I built my family with, which one I built. If the Lord entrusts me with a business, which one the Lord and the, the, the people he entrusts me to shepherd, the, the, the ministries I build, it will expose and reveal that. And I want to approach that moment, looking at the lamb of God, looking at him and saying, you built it. I didn't do it. It was, it was you who did it. It wasn't my own, it wasn't my own wit. It wasn't my own intellect. It was the presence of the Lord. You built this thing. That is costly right there. It's costly. And it's, it's not popular. Very few do it. It's a slow drip, but it's costly in the end. I mean, you know, purity, purity doesn't have to flex its muscles to know it's, it's here. <laughs> doesn't have to flex. It doesn't have to shout. Purity just has to be, and it shouts the name of Jesus just by being. That's how important purity is in the body of Christ. All right, I want to go ahead and move on to the second one. Friends of Jesus have a devotion to the scriptures or a devotion to his word. It's impossible to love the presence of God if we do not love the word of God. I just want to say that we need to read our Bibles. I know this is like dwell kids elementary stuff that we would teach, like read your Bibles, read your Bibles. But I am shocked and grieved at the same time at how many Christians and how many pastors do not read their word daily. Like it's a big deal (laughs) reading the scriptures, reading the scriptures. I don't learn for myself that, that, uh, approaching the word, approaching the scriptures. I can't approach it as a preacher, as a pastor. I have to approach it as a child who is just hungry. (laughs) I I don't, you know, just between me and you, I don't read this to get something for you guys. I love you guys, but I read this so I can survive. (laughs) I read this for me and I know what feeds me will feed you. Okay. So we need to approach the word as children, not as professionals, not as intellects, as children, as children. Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So you and I are alive because he speaks through the scriptures. The moment we remove the word, the bread of life from our souls, our souls will die. It's not like, it's it's not like a, it's a big deal. That's what I want to say. The scriptures are a big deal to continually have these in our lives. And you know, anytime we raise a standard like this in a, in a community or in a group of people, anytime a standard of purity is raised, anytime a standard of the scriptures are raised, there, there's always voices that say, that's, that's legalism, that's religion. Why are you bringing legalism here? And I want to say, that's not legalism, that's love. Love is addicted to the voice of the bridegroom. And, you know, my, my dad grew up in a very legalistic denomination where you would go to hell apparently if you if you played instruments it's like oh no <laughs> what do we do and and that that is real like there there's been errors of legalism in the body of Christ but i just want to say this we cannot let the errors of a past legalistic age be an excuse for us to not live in holiness and not pursue purity and not pursue the presence of god we can't allow that to be an excuse it's like, we can't, there's, there's a difference between love and legalism. There's a difference. There's a difference. I want to read in uh, Matthew chapter four, if we could turn our Bibles there. This uh, 
portion of scripture that we're about to read is Jesus being tested in the wilderness. I'm sure we're all aware of that. Right before this, Jesus has the most incredible spiritual experience he has had in his life up to that point while on earth. He is baptized by John the Baptist. The heavens open and it says the spirit comes in and rests on him like a dove. The father gives him this affirmation. And directly after that incredible experience, he is led into the wilderness by the spirit, by the way. So this really can give us, show us two things. Number one, life-changing spiritual encounters will always attract a testing from the enemy. Always, always. How many of you have remembered in your Christian walk, anytime you get a great prophetic word, the opposite happens. And there's a reason for that because the word has to be tested. The encounter has to be tested because it has to go from this experience and it has to be refined and seared into the in, in, innately into the cellular DNA of our souls. And that's what testing does. That's what fire does. It tests that word. It takes that word, that experience, and it ingrains it into your personality, into your DNA, into who you are. So you need the testing. I need the testing. It's for your good. It's for your benefit. So Jesus is led into the wilderness. And I'm going to read here in verse 1. Then Jesus returned from the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry. It's like, yeah, I would be hungry too, 40 days. It's funny. He did not eat for 40 days and he was hungry. He said, uh, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, it is written, man must not live on bread alone. So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me. And I won't read the rest, but Jesus, we all know, uses it is written, it is written, it is written. It's very interesting to me though. After the most amazing spiritual encounter you could have, he does not use the encounter or the experience to fight the devil. He uses the word. He uses the scriptures. I want to say our experiences with God, we can't use those to fight in warfare. We need to use the scriptures. So the experiences of God can be used to strengthen ourselves in the Lord, to remind us who God is in us, who we are in God. Yes, but the devil is not phased by experiences. He lived in heaven. He had more spiritual experiences than any of us in this room. Lucifer was the chief angel. Scripture even says that his inner construct, his organs were made from instruments. So he didn't even have to play an instrument. He just had to breathe and worship would come out of him. He knew experience better than any of us will until we get to heaven. Doesn't phase him. But the word he can't argue with. The word he can't argue with. I want to suggest to you this. The words, it is written, are more powerful than you hearing God audibly. It is written is more powerful than hearing God audibly. Not even, G, not even the devil could argue with it is written. <laughs> so why do Christians argue with the scriptures? <laughs> why should we argue with the scriptures? It is written. 
the Bible is, was written by 40 different men with 2,500 prophecies in it. 2,000 prophecies have already been fulfilled. We have 500 more to go. And from this success rate, I think we're on a good track, right? Of, of seeing these fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled just 332 prophecies in his life alone. And I just want to say to us as a people, we need to know our scriptures better than we know the stats on our college football team. And I'm saying that to me. I, I was like all up in OU versus Texas yesterday. Amen. Hook them horns. <laughs> but, but we can't bring a knife to a gunfight is what I'm saying. We can't bring a knife to a gunfight. We need to strengthen our arsenal. All right, I'm uh, running low on time. So I want to go ahead and go to the third one. Friends of Jesus are committed to humility and lowliness. Friends of Jesus are committed to humility and lowliness. Babe, can you give me my water right there? Thanks. Sorry, it's dry. I had a Nashville hot chicken yesterday. It killed my throat. It killed me. <laughs> It was good though. It was hot, right? <laughs> Friends of Jesus are committed to humility and lowliness. If you would ask me what I think the greatest plague attacking our youth is, uh, there's a lot, but one of the greatest I would say is the plague of entitlement. The plague of entitlement. Entitlement is like poison in believers. It's like poison. If Thanksgiving, opens the gates to his presence. What gates do I open with entitlement? What gates do I open with entitlement? It's interesting to me as, you know, back in the 50s, I love talking to my grandparents. They were born in the 50s and they were farmers. And it's like, life was so hard. Like hearing this stuff, I'm like, um, you know, what did you use for deodorant? We didn't have deodorant. What? <laughs> you didn't have deodorant? I mean, he was like, well, you just all stunk. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> but, but seeing how difficult life was, but seeing how much, how great the morals were though back then. And seeing today, like how easy life has become, like technology has advanced and it's all great. Life has become, become so convenient. There's such an ease to it. And you would think that based on the ease of life, the anxiety levels should be like down right now because life is, should be easier, right? But instead the exact opposite has happened. As technology, as life has gotten easier, anxiety has just skyrocketed. Depression levels have just skyrocketed. It just shows that ease and convenience will not satisfy the soul. Ease and convenience, only the Prince of Peace can satisfy the soul can satisfy that. And I want to suggest that this culture of convenience has created this culture of entitlement. And this entitlement has made anxiety levels go crazy. So I want to read a scripture as part of this. First Peter chapter five, verse five. In the same way, you who are younger, so he's speaking to the younger generation, submit yourselves to your elders, all of you, Clothe, people are like, hey man, listen, like you're fist bumping your child. <laughs> All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud. I don't know if we understand what that scripture means. 
You do not want the creator of the universe opposing you. That is like trying to bust through a concrete wall. He's not gonna budge. God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all anxiety on him because he cares for you. It's interesting to me that Peter directly connects a presence of pride with a presence of anxiety. (laughs) He connects an absence of humility with the presence of anxiety. He connects it. And I wanna just say this, pride always attracts anxiety. In other words, anxiety will always inhabit the areas of your life where there's an absence of humility. And I want to suggest our world does not have an entitlement problem. It has a, it has a, well, it doesn't have an anxiety problem. It has an entitlement problem. That's, that's what it is. Pride. When I was 15, I was a part of our youth worship team and I played guitar and I sang for that. And we had a worship leader that just got hired on staff. And this worship leader had a very sarcastic personality. How many of you ever known someone who's just, they're, they're just sarcastic and it just rubs you the wrong way. And I was, uh, you had to walk on eggshells around me then. I was very tender. I, I cried at the drop of the hat and uh, I'm still kind of like that, right? <laughs> and this, this leader just rubbed me the wrong way. He just came across to me as very critical. Like after every service, I would get down from the stage and it would just be like, pointing to me at everything that could have gone better. And I could have received it better. I could have, you know, I didn't handle it the right way. I really probably read into it more than what it was. I was probably reading into it as criticism when he was looking at it as, hey, I want you to get better. So, but I remember in that season, there were just levels of anxiety that were rising in my heart. I would pull up to the church and I would see this person's car and just, I would cringe inside. How many of you have ever seen someone's car and you just cringe like, no, they're here today. <laughs> and then the anxiety would just shoot through my, through my veins. And my mom, uh, she was very high up in leadership at our church. And sometimes which she probably shouldn't have done this, but she would fight battles for me. And really just, if, I, if injustice was happening to me and, and all this stuff, she would kind of insert herself and speak and, and fight for me. But this time she said, you need this offense. You need this in your life to shape you into the David that I know God has inside of you, the heart of David. I'm not gonna bail you out of this. You need to learn how to take this offense this pride, this even if it is rightfully injustice happening, rightfully someone's abusing me, you need to learn how to take this to the Lord because yes. that shapes your character. Yes. That shapes anointing. You, I'm not going to bail you out. So this leader, he was uh, uh, leading worship like all day on our Sunday services. So I had a break. He didn't. So he didn't have time to get lunch. So my mom suggested that I go get him lunch and bring lunch to the church for him to eat. Oh, gosh. So... <laughs> I did it, you know, first day, first Sunday, buy him lunch, bring it to him, serve. It was so difficult. I'm going up against the grain of what I don't want to do. So I do it the next week, bring him lunch. 
And as, as the weeks go by, I realize my anxiety levels are just dipping, 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 going lower, lower, and lower. As I continually go against the grain, I don't have like this distaste for it anymore. I like am enjoying serving this person. Like I find an enjoyment in serving. The situation didn't change. I still had criticism and all this stuff, but my heart was changing. My heart was becoming more and more tender. And, and by the, by few months later, I realized the anxiety was completely gone. Not only that, five years later, Emily and I are getting married. That person, that worship leader becomes a groomsman in my wedding. One of my best friends to this day. One of my best friends to this day. And I want to say this, please don't miss your opportunity to work through a fence. So many times, like, you know, we will be offended. You have been offended. We will be offended. We will be overlooked. We will get passed up. Like, it's not a thing of if, it's like it has and it will happen. <laughs> like, injustice, betrayal, all that stuff. Some of you are walking through it today. And our first instinct, anytime pain is going on in our body, what's the first thing we want? Stop the pain, stop the pain, make the pain stop. Same thing in our hearts. Whenever pain is happening, the first thing is leave, 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 make the pain stop. Jump, jump ship. I want to say, don't jump ship. Our first instinct is leave the job, leave the church, leave the relationship, whatever it is. It's like, no, you are forfeiting. If you do that, you're forfeiting the opportunity for you to bring this to the Lord and to be shaped and purged and seared into the man, woman, and God that he is calling you to be. Don't dodge and forfeit the opportunity God laid here for you to become more like Jesus. The character, character is shaped from taking betrayal, taking offense, and saying, I'm not going to let this move me. I'm going to dig my heels in. I'm going to bring this to the Lord, and I need an encounter with God that is greater than the pain that I'm experiencing right now. I'm going to bang on the doors of heaven, knock on heaven, until I have his presence. His presence meets this area of pain in my life. I need to find that silver lining of his presence in every season of pain and process. And guess what's on the, out, the outcome of that? Gold, silver, precious stone. Oil, 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 oil. Even, you know, in the early church days and the book of Acts, they didn't have like five churches on one street like we do today. So you were lucky if you had one. So if, if someone offended you or whatever, you couldn't just jump down two blocks. I'm not saying anyone here does that, but I'm just saying that you had to dig your heels in and say, no, God called me here. I'm going to press in. I'm going to take this offense. I'm going to, I'm, I'm feeling overlooked right now, but I'm going to take this to the Lord because a season is just a season. It's not a lifetime. It's a, it's not a lifetime. David said, though I walk through the valley of shadows, not that I make camp in the valley of shadows. I walk through the valley of shadows. Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, the meek will inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. So when we assert ourselves with pride and, and arrogance to win a conversation, what's our reward from that? Really, it's just, we get the satisfaction of winning a conversation. But when we choose meekness, our reward is that we inherit the earth in the age to come. That's what meekness does. Meekness. All right, um, I could go ahead and get piano up here. I wanna go ahead and, and close. But on this topic of, uh, of pride, I really do feel like the Lord is weeding out spiritual showmanship in his bride. He's weeding it out.
It's like he's weeding it out. Um, at a pastor's conference we went to, it's funny, I'm, I'm like a professional people watcher. How many of you like just to watch people? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I was, we were sitting in the back and we were just kind of just day one, taking it all in, listening to all these pastor's conversations. And, and I don't fault any of them. I do this too. But a lot of the conversations were like, here is my greatest prophetic word. Here's how big my church is right now. Here's our, our sermon series. Here, here's how many campuses we have. Here's this and this and this and this. And, and little by little, as the week went on, as we were exposed to deeper, deeper places of the presence of God, there was like a holy hush in the room after the last day. And no one was talking about how anointed they were. No one was talking about how gifted they were. They were all talking about how lovely he is, how beautiful he is. They were more impressed with him than their own resumes. And, and that's what the glory of God does. It weeds out spiritual showmanship. <laughs> when you get close enough to the glory of God, to the presence of God, you realize, oh my goodness, I can't take that with me into where I wanna go next. Like this thing right here in my heart, oh, that's ugly, it can't stay here, Jesus. And it, you work it out and the Lord will co-labor with you to weed that spiritual showmanship out from the bride. It's humility. He weeds it out. To live in humility, the, the best way I can say to live in humility is make Jesus your reward and keep him as your reward. Make him the reward and keep him the reward. There is no answered prayer that is greater than the reward of knowing him. There is no breakthrough that is greater than the reward of knowing his touch. There's a place so deep in love with him where um, everything just loses its taste. And, and there's a place so deep in love where you would rather die than not know his touch. I know that sounds extreme, but King David said, if you don't touch me, if you don't speak, it's as though I'm dead. It's as though I'm down to the pit. People are not the food for me right here. Like this is not my food. This is not feeding my soul. Crowds aren't the food for me. I am just as satisfied up here on a microphone as I am in my prayer room, seeking him, knowing him. He's my food. He's my food. Number four, friends of his presence intentionally steward lovesick hearts. Friends of his presence intentionally steward Love sick hearts. There's a story I heard recently. How many of you have ever heard of Amy Simple McPherson? She was an incredible revivalist um, on the earth. And there's a story where Catherine Coleman, she went to her, she went to Amy Simple McPherson's grave to just visit and pay her respects. And at the grave, uh, Amy Simple McPherson's secretary was there and she was just weeping, weeping, weeping at the tombstone. And Catherine Coleman asked her, it was like, if you could take one thing from this woman's life, what would it be? What, like, why are you even weeping right now? It's been years since she passed. And she said this, she said, Sister Amy, she made Jesus so real to me. She made him so real to me. And I think that's the secret sauce for our lives is to know him and to make him known, to make him real to make him real. This question is not to shame us, but to provoke us. Can we ask ourselves, how real are we making Jesus to the world around us? How real is he? Is he ethereal? Just kind of like this thing out there. Is he a person? Is he a person? 
I heard a story a while back about this TV program. They were interviewing like five different pastors and they asked these pastors this one question, what does Jesus mean to you? And, and four of those five pastors kind of answered the question very quickly. And then they started ranting on about, you know, all the exploits they're doing good exploits, you know, all these great things and activities that the, the church is doing and how many campuses they're raising up and all that good stuff. It's, it's good. It's not evil. But one pastor, he couldn't even get through the question because he was weeping when he was trying to explain what Jesus meant to him. He had a small church, but he was obsessed with the Lord. I'll take that over five campuses and any opportunity. I'll take that over anything. I want to weep every time I think of him. He's that beautiful. He's that wonderful. He's that perfect. Pastor Benny Hinn shares that before he even preaches on sermon, he went to a Catherine Coleman meeting in Pennsylvania. And the moment Catherine Coleman walked in the room, the entire room started weeping. And he said, we weren't weeping because Catherine walked in. We were weeping because the God she loved walked in with her. <laughs> she lives so intimate with the Lord. One of the greatest windows into what true friendship with Jesus requires is, it's really my, one of my life chapters in Luke chapter 10. I, I Reference this a lot. It's when Jesus visits his closest friends in a town called Bethany, his friends Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. See, Jesus healed and preached everywhere, but he only reclined in one place, in a place called Bethany. And I want to say he does the same thing on earth today. He wants to rest somewhere. He moves everywhere, but I don't want him to just move. I want him to rest here. I want him, I want him to live here, to recline here to recline here. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. While they were traveling, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister, Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said, listening to his words. I want to say that is the best posture to read your word, to read your scripture from the place of worship, from the place of at his feet. I do not open up my scriptures until I have first worshiped him. She sat at his feet and listened to the words from his mouth. He's, Martha was distracted by her many tasks and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is needed. One thing is needed. I'm never gonna get a tattoo in my entire life, but if I did, <laughs> It would be one thing is needed. <laughs> one thing is needed. And Mary has made the right choice. See, first love will not fall in your lap. You have to choose it. Mary has chosen it. It didn't just come to her. She had to choose first love. And he said this, it will not be taken from her. There is no demon in hell that can take away your first love. There is no principality. There's no demonic force that can steal it, but we can relinquish it if we choose to. But hell can't take it. Hell can't take it. It will not be taken away from her. The most moving thing to me about Mary of Bethany is that 
Mary of Bethany didn't have the resume that the other disciples had. She didn't plant churches. She didn't, she didn't preach sermons. She didn't have this big calling. She had one calling and it was this, to sit at the feet of Jesus and to love him. And I asked myself this, if that was my only calling, would I be satisfied? If that was your only call in life, to sit at the feet of Jesus, would that be enough? Would that satisfy you? Is he worthy enough to you? Is he enough to you? How satisfied will you choose to be with him? How satisfied will you choose to be? Every issue of life comes down to this. It is a satisfaction issue. Drug addiction, a satisfaction issue. Pornography, a satisfaction issue. Alcohol abuse, a satisfaction issue. I, I say this to the youth. I say, you know, you should all dream about marrying your, your dream spouse. But that person, there is a place in your heart that that person cannot touch. That is reserved only for Jesus. Meeting the, your dream spouse, there is a place in your heart that will touch that, but it's not the place in your heart. That is reserved only for Jesus. If you try to fit anything else in there, you will, be you will not be satisfied. You will be depressed and depleted. Last thing I wanna read, and then we can pray and feel like the Lord wants to just bring some impartation in the room. Philippians chapter three, Paul wrote this towards the end of his life after planning more churches than most pastors on earth today could dream of. He discipled hundreds of people. He wrote two thirds of the New Testament. He had a resume that was like incredible. And I like to view this passage as Paul's Mount Everest in the epistles. Like this is what made Paul, Paul right here, this, this verse. Philippians 3, verse 3. For we are the circumcision, the ones who serve by the Spirit of God, boast in Jesus Christ and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I once had confidence in the flesh. So he's, he's now saying, I once gloried in my own accomplishments. I once gloried in my own achievements. He said, I once did that. And here he goes to list his accomplishments. He said, I have, I have many I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew, born of Hebrews as to the law. I was a Pharisee as to zeal. I persecuted the church though. As to the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. And here it is. But everything that was a gain to me, all of my achievements, everything I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. My goal is to know him. To look at what this scripture is saying, I wanna look at what this scripture is not saying. <laughs> Paul is not saying here at the end of his life, writing this, he's not saying, I wish I would have spoken to more crowds. He's not saying, I wish I would have written more books. He's not saying, I wish I would have had more influence. I wish I would have had a bigger business. I wish I would have had more net worth to my name. I wish, I wish, I wish. He's not saying that. This is the only thing he's saying. I want to know him. I want to to know him. I have a great resume. I have all these things. That's not my reward. That's filth in my eyes. Knowing him is my reward. It's knowing him. Why should we settle for anything less? 
I tell this story a lot and I don't tell it because I have nothing else to share. I just tell it because the more I say it out loud, the more my heart just gets brought back to these encounters. But when Emily and I, we gave up everything to go to Redding, California and just sit at the feet of Jesus. There was a point towards the end of our time where our bank account was almost drained to zero and we just had this tiny apartment. We had no, (laughs) I didn't think I'd ever be in ministry again. I was just like, okay, I need to start applying for jobs and this is not, you know, gonna work. I thought, uh, you know, this is, this is it. This is it. And I remember in that season, the Lord was touching us so deeply so intimately that food lost its taste to us. We're like, we would, we had no desire to eat a meal. Like we, we had the meal. He was our meal. We were in a season where it's like TV stopped entertaining us. It's just, I lost my appetite for it. I lost my taste for it because I was tasting something so better, so rich, so wonderful. I lost my taste for all of that. I remember something in that season that I'll take with me to to my grave is that he is the food at the end of the day. (laughs) He is the meal. He is the substance. He is the water. He is the bread. He is my salvation. He is my Lord. He is the air in my lungs. He is everything. Jesus cannot be part of our services. He has to be all. He cannot be part of our lives. He has to be all. He has to be all. He has to be all. And I remember just the last few weeks reminiscing about that season. And I just remember saying, God, I have an appetite right now for things that aren't you. It's not that it's like sinful things, but I'm just like, Lord, I miss, I miss how food lost its taste. Jesus, I miss you. I miss your touch. I miss your presence. I don't want to become a professional leader. I want to stay hungry. I want to stay childlike. Jesus, I miss you. Take me back. Take me back to where you're my treasure. Take me back. See, our hearts get so hard. It's, it's just natural. The longer we, we go and just get busy, the, the more callous. And just as uh, Keith Green used to say, Lord, I want baby skin again. I want you to make my heart soft. And I just remember I felt his touch again. I felt it. He's so faithful. He's so faithful. The last thing I want to I say, Oral Roberts, he had a, uh, he had a big painting in his office. And the painting was a painting of Jesus catching a fish, this big, massive fish. There were three disciples in that painting. Two of them had their mouths open, looking, staring at the fish, the size of it, how big it is, they're staring at it. But one of the disciples, which was John the Beloved, was not staring at the fish, he was staring at Jesus. He was staring at Jesus. I hope we all just come to a place so deep in our hearts where the size of our fish, <laughs> ministries, businesses, our bank accounts, our families, I just, I pray that we would all come to that place where our eyes, we're grateful for the fish, but we're more in love with the one who brought the fish. 
Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.